those words. Meet us here in this place. Come and fill us with your power and your grace. We long to see the nations one. Of course, that's the burden of our world outreach, but it's also the burden of Romans 9 through 11, that God wants to see all nations, Jew, Gentile, every nation, tribe, and tongue be one in Christ. I hope you're uh, excited about today. I am, and uh, this is a great passage of Scripture that we have. Uh, Notice uh, there in your notes, I have at the top of your notes, it says this, Romans 9, 1 through 3 is as relevant as a two and a half hour flight from Boston to Chicago. The reason being, as I said earlier, we uh, as a staff went to the uh, National Fellowship meeting in Boston. And on our flight home, we're coming back and uh, have a two hour flight from uh, Boston to Chicago. And uh, we didn't have anything to put in the overhead bin, so we waited everybody really was on and then we got on because uh, we have our backpacks and those kind of things and just put it under our, our chairs. So when, it, when I got to where my seat was, is a middle seat, you know, which your initial, oh, this is, you know, bad. And so we come there and uh, it was a couple, uh, old, uh, an old, uh, older couple, retired or semi-retired, and they were sitting on the window in the aisle, you know. And so when I come, the lady says, oh, you're here, you know, with, uh, you know, obvious she had the same feeling about me arriving as I did about sitting in the middle, and uh, and, and but they, and they were they were just outgoing and they were vivacious and they were outgoing and and so they saw they had seen that Bruce had just sat down on the aisle seat and I, I was with him and and we were together and so they said oh you, you know and, and so the man who was on the aisle graciously agreed to move over to the center seat so that uh, I could sit on the aisle and be next to the guy I was traveling with, which I thought was a glorious thing. And so we sat down, and within moments of sitting down, it, uh, I, and I forget how I, I, I understood this, so I, they, were, they were talking about, uh, I guess last week was the New Year for the uh, Jewish New Year, uh, Rosh Hashanah, and uh, they, were, they had been celebrating that, and so that had come out. So immediately I knew, so I'm sitting down there, and within a couple minutes, I'm like, okay, I'm sitting next to a Jewish couple. Now, what are the odds of teaching Romans 9 through 11 for, you know, and having four weeks talking about, and this week, 9, 1 through 3, Paul's burden for the Jewish people. What are the odds of that? Well, I knew as tired as I was and as much as I wanted to uh, veg out and just sleep, that that was not God's assignment for my life, nor was it my desire once I heard this. Because I thought, my goodness, as much as I have been praying, studying, and immersing myself in this, passionately teaching this to you. How can I sit here for two and a half hours and not witness to, having just studied the wonderful privileges, these eight privileges that are theirs? So here's a couple. And as the progression, and as you would expect, what are the odds of them believing in Christ? Close, very little, according to Scripture. And that was the case. Here was a couple... Uh, Jerry and Susan, you know, Jewish couple, Jewish man, Jerry. I, I even, I, I, and we talked for two and a half. They tag teamed me, actually, because they, they, at, at about the hour and a half mark, uh, they got up and went to the restroom, and then they switched seats. So, that you know, uh, Jerry needed a break, and then Susan wanted to go at it. And so we went at it. And uh, here's a couple who, atheists, atheists, there's no God. 
There's no God. Well, what's your purpose in life? I, I mean, I'm telling you, two and a half hours, you could break that discussion down, and it would be a 101 class on Jewish evangelism on Romans 9, 10, and 11. I'm sitting there as I'm talking, I'm like, wow, that's Romans 9. And then we're talking a little further, whoa, that's Romans 10. And then we talk a little bit, hey, there's hope. There's Romans 11. I mean, basically, what we're, what we're studying is as relevant as any encounter you might have with a Jewish couple or any other nationality. It could have been anyone. As we're going along, I was like, Jerry, what's your purpose in life then? If there is no God, then what's your purpose in life? And he said, well, it's to enjoy life. And let me tell you, Jerry was enjoying life. Uh, he does root canals solely. Uh, now he's semi-retired, does it two days a week. And the other rest of the week, he spends at one of his two vacation homes there in New England. One on the Cape Cod for a little summer action, and then one up in New, uh, Vermont for a little winter skiing. So, Jerry, what's the purpose in life if there is no God? Well, it's to enjoy life. And I thought to myself, indeed, you are. And he said, and he likened it to this. It's, it's, and he said this. It, it's, like, it's like enjoying a good cheeseburger and fries. And I'm thinking in my heart, wow, we just studied these wonderful privileges in Romans 9 that are theirs right now. They are still a part of God's chosen people. These are their riches, and he's settling for cheeseburger and fries. You say, yeah, but they got those three homes. Yeah, but that's cheeseburgers and fries. And I said this to him. I said, Jerry, think about cheeseburger and fries. That's going to come out my back end. That can't be a very worthy purpose in life. You could tell Jerry and I were just getting down to it. And that's what we were. They were, and I say this with all due respect, they were your stereotypical Jewish couple. I mean, they were funny. They were uh, wealthy. They were. They were just. They were a hoot. Everybody was their friend. They're talking to everybody, you know. And and you know they're coming to sell snacks. You know they sell snacks for four forty nine. You know. I said, well, if it was four fifty, I'd do it. But I, so I, I was getting in on the action. Jerry says, I got a quarter. My dad gave me a quarter. I mean, he's just a funny, funny guy. At one point, I even asked him. I said, do you like Seinfeld? Oh yeah, I love that. I love that. It's really funny. But he didn't like uh, the other, uh, the spinoff, the uh, norm, uh, life as normal anyway. And he said that was probably too Jewish, cut too close to. Um, it was just amazing two and a half hours. Here's folks with the riches as God's elect people. And yet, just as we've studied, hearts as hard as, as, hard as could be. But God planted seed. And who am I to not know whether they might be part of that elect remnant who am i to know that they might not be the apostle paul a saul of tarsus waiting to be the apostle paul how do you know that there's only one way to know that you have to plant the seeds of the gospel i got susan to commit jerry wouldn't do it susan committed to uh, read the gospel of john so would you pray for susan to, to read the gospel of john i mean we're talking about so hard and so resistant to the gospel that they had not even read the torah I said, have you read the Torah? I asked Jerry, do you know who the father, you know, I mean, you know the father of, of, of the Jewish people, right? He didn't. He's like, you mean my dad? What are you, what are you talking about? No, the father of, you know, where the Jewish people came from. Moses? No, before that. Abraham. Oh, yeah, my grandpa's name's Abraham. Yeah, I'm from Abraham. Yeah, I got that. 
Man, it was just total, total. And I think it was blowing their mind that a gen, they, they don't think this, but that a Gentile believer in Christ knew more about their God, their faith, their scripture than they did. Well read, highly intelligent, very successful. Heartbreaking. Because they were hell-bent on their destruction. There's no God. I don't want to do no. I don't want to do anything with it. Nothing to do. Sadly, but not surprising, in light of Romans 9 through 11, these folks were atheists who did not believe in God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, much less the ultimate Jew, Jesus Christ, their promised Messiah. At one point, talking with Susan, I said, because I, I purposely, you know, I said, you know, Jesus is the ultimate Jew. And at one point in our conversation, in two and a half hours, I don't even know how to outline. I don't even know. I can't even remember half of it in a sense. But at one point I said, you know, Susan, I'm a spiritual Jew. Yes, you are. But they weren't. It was heartbreaking, and I told them so, that they were hell-bent. Abs- you know what hell-bent means? I looked this word up. Absolutely determined to do something regardless of the consequences. See, all of us are born hell-bent, aren't we? Absolutely determined to remain in our sins, reject Christ, despite the eternal consequences of eternal punishment in hell. So the question I have for you and that Paul has for us in Romans 9, 1 through 3 is this. Are you burdened for the eternal destiny of the people around you? Are you burdened for the eternal destiny of the people around you? And here's what I know, I know, I know, because I know it in my heart, and I think you would agree. We need to be heartbroken for the hell-bent. We need to be heartbroken for the hell-bent. And this is exactly how Paul begins Romans 9 through 11. Turn your Bibles to Romans 9, 1 through 3, where we see a man who is heartbroken, for his hell-bent relatives who are determined on a course of action that will lead to consequences of eternal judgment. Notice what Romans 9, 1 through 3 says. Here's Here's what he says. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great Sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul is burdened. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is heartbroken for those who are hell-bent, particularly the people to whom he is related, the Jewish People. I find it amazing that right before one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible, a passage that deals with the divine mystery of divine election, it begins, I mean, and this is a chapter that's led to so much speculation, so much argument, so much strife, so much division. It stirred up philosophical debate and numerous hypothetical questions. All this abstract angst and argument Right before that chapter, Paul begins with a very personal, passionate, practical testimony of his burden for lost people. 
I think God did that on purpose because as we move in to these great, deep, mysterious truths about God's sovereignty and salvation, Paul and God himself wants us to remember that this isn't abstract. This isn't hypothetical. This is real. It's personal. It's about individuals that are going to hell. And I don't think it's an accident that God would divinely appoint my life to sit right next to two relevant, real, loving, enjoyable. I said, man, if I had grandparents, I'd want you guys to be my grandparents. Yeah, we have a lot of fun. Boy, they have. I don't think it's an accident that God put me next to them to remind me and to remind us that these are real people that we're talking about. Please keep in mind that the very same man who wrote about divine election in the weeks to come is the same man here who is burdened and passionate about the his brethren in the flesh who are going to hell without Christ. In fact, here's the thing. Immediately, as we read these three verses, immediately the myth that the biblical teaching on God's sovereignty and salvation leads to a cold heart and a silent witness is debunked. Oh, let's not talk about election. That's just divisive. Let's not talk about God's sovereignty and salvation. That that will still the fires of evangelism. That will cause your heart to go, grow cold. That will cause you not to be evangelistic. Really? Did you just hear what this man said in verses 1 through 3? And what he's going to say about God being ultimately sovereign? The same man wrote them both and believed them both. In fact, Paul keeps this very personal and practical connection throughout chapters 9 through 11. I have it in your notes. I think it's amazing. You, you start out chapter 9. Here is Paul's personal pain over the condemnation of the people of Israel. And so he goes through election in chapter 9. But then he takes a break in chapter 10. And he says, hey, all this talk about election, don't think for a minute it doesn't mean you shouldn't pray. Because isn't that a question that people... People have written whole books. Well, if God is sovereign and it's all according to His will, why should I pray? Well, guess what? I don't have all the answers to that. All I know is the guy that wrote Romans 9 begins chapter 10 with saying, it is my heart's desire and prayer to God that they may be saved. And then he talks some more about the hard heart of the Jewish people and their rejection. And then he takes a break and he comes to 11.1 and he says, hey, here's some positive proof. God is still at work. Look at me, Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul to the Gentile. So this personal thing. So all I'm saying on this is tonight, today, we are setting a tone that as we get into these deep truths and we start freaking out because God is suddenly bigger than what we ever thought he was and we don't like that and we get uncomfortable. We got to come back down and remember through it all, this is a personal, very practical issue. Are you with me? Shake your head like this is connecting. So how does Paul begin to unravel the mystery of God's saving purposes of our sovereign Savior? Here's how he does it. He shares his burden for the eternal destiny of lost people, specifically his own people, the Jews. So I want you to step back and think. When he talks about his burden for the Jews, he's, we're going to see that he's talking about the burden we should have. We should be burdened for the Jewish people as a people. 
We should be uh, burdened for individual Jews like Jerry and Susan, that they would come to Christ. But understand this, the idea is bigger, not only the Jewish people, but every people group, Mongolians, Pakistan, Thanians, something like that. Every people group. So as we talk about the Jews, we're not we're, we're we're talking about them specifically as a people group. But there's many people groups, and, and, and in these people groups, there's individuals. And so the tension is always the same. I should be, see, here's the thing. Are you ever gonna meet a Mongolian? More than likely, probably not. Maybe in this world, yeah, in the in the in the current way the world is, you know, you definitely can meet people from Pakistan. But here's the point. I may be burdened for someone because I know them individually. I'm burdened for, for Jerry and Susan because I met them. But I should be burdened for all of Israel, even though I haven't met them. I should be burdened for all of Mongolia, for all of Pakistan. And listen, you're not going to be burdened like that if you don't come to the world outreach and meet these people and meet and hear about their burden. So... What are four characteristics? We're going to see in this passage, in these three verses, four characteristics of those who are really burdened. And what I want to present to you this morning is ask yourself the tough question, because you can't study this passage without asking it. Am I burdened? And if I am, here are the characteristics that will mark my life. Number one. Those burdened for the eternal destiny of others, number one, believe the reality of the burden. They believe in the reality of the burden. And here's what he says. It's in verse 3. Look at verse 3. He, he, he's saying, I wish I could be accursed, uh, accursed and cut off from Christ for my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Well, look at verse 3. Really, here's what he's saying. The reality is that everyone who is without Christ is under the curse of God's eternal wrath. The reality is this, that everyone who is without Christ, who is cut off from Christ, who is separated from Christ, is under the curse of God's eternal wrath. Now, Paul's being very tactful, and this is what you've got to do when you witness. You know, you don't walk up to people and say, hey, bad news, you're going to hell. Good news, I know how to get you out of that. That's not how we witness. That's not tactful. So what Paul is saying here in verse 3, basically he's saying the Jewish people are cut off and cursed, but he says it in a way, with he says it indirectly. Do you see that in verse 3? That's his implication. Why does he want to be cut off? Because he knows they are cut off, and that's where the burden come from, come, comes from. The point is very clear. All those who are separated or cut off from Christ are under God's curse, and are headed for a Christless eternity. Now, notice in verse 3, he said, accursed. Accursed from Christ. That's literally, that's what it says. New King James says, accursed from Christ. But the ESV, along with most other recent translations, expanded out a little bit and captures the real meaning, uh, the, the meaning of what he's saying, and it's basically this. To be cut off from Christ is to be cursed by God. To be cursed by God is to be cut off from Christ. You, you can't have one without the other. In other words, you can't have God's blessing and be cut off from Christ. You can't be saved and not know about Christ. That is the essence of what he says, says here. Now, accursed translates a Greek word that you've, all, you've probably heard before, anathema. 
Have you heard that word? Anathema. And it basically means to be given over to God for his special use. It can mean to be given over to God for him to use you for his enjoyment. Or it means to be given over to God and to be under his divine wrath. Well, the way Paul uses this word throughout the New Testament is in the negative sense. To be anathema, to be accursed, is to be given over to God and placed under his divine wrath for eternal punishment in hell for all of eternity. Turn your Bibles to Galatians 1, 8 through 9. I want you to see him using this word. I want you to see it in context. I want you to feel the weight of it. This is a powerful word for being judged and condemned to eternal wrath, eternally separated from God due to our response to the gospel. Look at Galatians 1, 8 through 9. Paul is speaking regarding to the Galatians regarding uh, false gospels and the true gospel. And here's what he says. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be sent to hell. Let him be eternally under the wrath of God because there's only one message of salvation and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice that he says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone, anyone is preaching to you a gospel, gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be what? Accursed, condemned forever in hell. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 16, 22. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Paul uses this again. You, listen, you know, in this age and culture where the emphasis is God is love. Love wins. God is love. Well, he is. But he's also holiness, justice, righteousness, wrath. Here's the apostle Paul just kind of you know, he's not doing it flippantly and he's not doing it joyfully, but he's doing it very clearly and very directly that, look, there's one gospel. And if you do not believe it, you're accursed. Now he's going to say there's one Christ. And if you do not believe in him, you're accursed. First Corinthians sixteen twenty two. If anyone, anyone has no love for the Lord. See, it's not just loving God. It's loving the risen, the crucified, risen, exalted Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't love him, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. And what's he mean? Our Lord come and judge those who do not believe. So what do you see there? The key to not being cursed is your relationship to Christ and your response to the gospel. Now, that's the reality. Paul has already made it clear in the book of Romans that we're all born sinners under the curse of sin and deserving of God's uh, deserving of God's wrath, which is already being poured out. Let me just read what's already been said about the wrath of God in Romans. Romans 1.8. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 1.18. Romans 2.5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2.8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury 
And then finally, Romans 3, 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Then he says in parentheses, I'm speaking in a human way. See, that's man's response to the wrath of God. God's not fair. That's not the kind of God I would want. But here's the reality. The reality is this, and you have it in your notes. We will never be burdened for the loss until we truly believe they are lost without Christ. You're like, Chris, I came to hear that. That is so obvious. Yes, it is. It is obvious. We will never be burdened for the loss until we truly believe they are without Christ. Here's where burden for lost people is born. It's born in the belief that they're really lost and headed for hell. And the fact of the matter is, we say we, we know that in our heads, but we do not believe that in our heart or we would be more burdened. Can I hear an amen? Or an oh my? See, Paul is burdened for the loss because he truly believes that just as much as he is saved, the Jewish people are cursed without Christ. Just as all people who reject the free gift of salvation. In Ephesians 2.12, here's how he defines, here how he is how he describes and defines people without Christ. Remember that you were, that's us, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now here's the reality, folks. People think what hinders evangelism is a belief in God's sovereign election, when in fact, what stifles evangelism is the belief that lost people are really not that bad and God is really not that holy. That's what stifles evangelism. You see, here's in general what, what lost and saved people in general, here's what they think. God is a pretty good God. People are pretty good people. Therefore, we will all be in heaven together having a pretty good time. Now listen, that's that hits really close to home. He's a pretty good God. I like him. People in general are pretty good. I like them. And we're all going to have a pretty good time in heaven. But listen, if that's our view you'll never be burdened for evangelism. The reality is this. God is very holy. We are very sinful. And therefore, Christ is very necessary for salvation. Therefore, we should be very burdened for the law. Now, most likely, uh, we all believe that. And it have something of a burden. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not insinuating that, that any of us here have no sense of a burden for lost people in a general, abstract way. And I'll go so far as to say most of us here probably have a very intense burden for specific people we love and know. But the question is, do we have a burden for an entire people group like Israel? Do we have a burden for an entire people group like Mongolia? Do we have a, a burden for the people of Mongolia that would drive us to have our baby in Mongolia just so that we don't delay our arrival any longer? Pick that up. I can think of a thousand places I'd rather have a baby 
than Mongolia. But that's not what they're thinking because they're burdened for the people. Did you hear Zach uh, talk about, um, or, or the Fernandez talk about uh, Pakistan? Uh, Pakistan. They're, 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 I'm sorry, it's they're the one. It's Pakistan. I'm sorry, I got it all first, but you got the idea. But then the piles were saying, pray for us because we, we just want to get there. The Nisleys, they want to get there. You know what I'm saying, even if I don't. Here's the measure of the reality of our burden, number two. The reality of the burden is shown when we speak with sincerity about the burden. When we speak with sincerity about the burden. This is how Paul begins in verse 1. He begins by almost, and I say it in quotes, swearing to the sincerity of his burden for the eternal destiny of his Jewish brethren. Look at what he says. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. You can just hear, you know, I want to convince you. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Here he is speaking with sincerity of his great burden. Now, why does he do that? Well, I think there's two reasons, or actually three. One, because in Romans 8, 28 through 32, he just rejoiced in how God has sovereignly chosen to give the blessings of Israel to the Gentile people. He's saying, hey, we're elect. We're called, we're predestined, we're justified, we're glorified. He's rejoicing in that. And so he now wants to say, look, even though those were originally promised to Israel, now I'm rejoicing that Gentiles have them. That doesn't mean that I, ha- that I don't care about my people. Secondly, because Jews were constantly accusing Paul of being disloyal to his people and to his God. I mean, Romans 1 through 8, if you look at what he says about about being a Jew, about having the law, and about Christ, you would swear, you know, he, he's the Judas of Jewish people in their mind. You're being disloyal. You're saying Jesus is the Messiah, this this guy who was condemned as a criminal, this guy who was a servant and not a, a, a ruler that overthrew through the Romans. You're saying that Jesus fulfilled the law and now we no longer have to fulfill the law in order to please God. You're saying that Jew and Gentile are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, without circumcision, without uh, Sabbath keeping. You're saying the law is not God's mean of becoming righteous. Paul, you are a Judas of the Jews. You are the Benedict Arnold of Israel. And so what he's saying is, no, I'm not. I sincerely am burdened for my people. But I think there's a third reason that he says this in verse 1, right after Romans 8, and it's this. Paul simply can't imagine rejoicing over the salvation of believers without also weeping over the condemnation of unbelief. Now, wake up here for a moment and get that. See, Paul simply can't imagine rejoicing in the blessings of salvation without also weeping over the condemnation of unbelievers. That's where I think we get in trouble. We separate the enjoyment of our blessings in Christ from a burden for the lost who are going to hell. We live in Romans 8, and we don't want to move to Romans 9, 1 through 3. We just want to stay in Romans 8. All things work together for good for me. Forgetting that that promise belongs 
to the Jewish people. It belongs to Jerry and Susan. It doesn't belong to us. It was made to them. And yet they have rejected it. We should weep over them. We should weep over them. So here's what Paul does. He shows his sincerity by building up. He says, first, I'm speaking truly. I'm not lying. And then he says, I'm speaking in Christ. And then he says, I'm speaking with a clear conscience that is word fed and spirit led. So let me give you three practical principles about the sincerity of our burden for the lost. First of all, if we're really burdened for lost people, a sincere burden is shared with others. Do you agree? A sincere burden is shared with others. Let me make the point one more time. Paul cannot speak about salvation of the Gentiles without also talking about the lostness of the Jews, and neither should we, if our burden is sincere. The truth is this. We should never, never rejoice in our salvation without also weeping about the lostness of the people around us. Here's how I put it. We know that we are sincerely glad over being saved by God's grace when we are sincerely sad over others being lost from Christ. Here's the point. When we are not burdened for lost people, it means we don't really appreciate our salvation is by grace. See, we think we earned it. They, we deserve it. They don't. So everything's as it should be. I can get on with my life. But the reality is, look, they don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. I got it, though I don't deserve it. I ought to be brokenhearted over others that don't have it, who don't deserve it either. And here's another point of application under this idea of sharing our burden. When we are sincerely burdened for the loss, we cannot help but share it with others. Here's the point. Paul is talking in Romans 8, and he's rejoicing, and then all of a sudden he switches gears, and it just comes out of him. Why? Because it's in him. What does the Bible say? Out of the abundance of our hearts, the mouth what? Speaks. Now, here's where, okay, here's where it's going to get uncomfortable. How much do we talk about our burden for lost people? Did we go this entire week and not mention the lostness of someone? Did we spend this entire week enjoying God and his blessings and the gifts that he's given us, family, work, house, job, church, fellowship, and we never once mentioned our burden? And you know why that is? Because it's not in there. Because if it's in there, it comes out. If people walked around with you and me with a tape recorder for a week, would they ever hear out of our mouths a burden like what Paul has made. Because if it's in there, it comes out. Second, uh, second point, a sincere burden is shared like Christ would share it. A sincere burden is shared like Christ is, would share it. He too is heartbroken for the hell bent. And I have two points under that. First of all, Paul's burden for the Jewish people in their unbelief was a Christ-like burden. And the reason I say that, do you realize the very last recorded words of Jesus is about his heartbrokenness over the lostness of the Jewish people? Listen to Matthew 23, 37. Here is the words of Jesus who is about to be crucified by his own people. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent, sent to it. 
just as I am sent and just as you will kill me. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. And then on the cross, though he was referring to both Romans, he was referring to the Jews. He said, Father, what? Forgive them for they know not what they do. You see, Christ had a love for the people who condemned him to the cross, and so should we. The second point I have under that is Paul's burden for the Jewish people in the unbelief is a Christian burden. When he says, I speak, I am speaking in Christ the truth. He's saying, I'm speaking in Christ. He's saying, I'm not only speaking as, as you know, this is not only what Christ thinks about the Jewish people who crucified him, who rejected him. He came to his own and his own did not know him. But this is how every Christian should think about the Jewish people. Here, I said it last week. Anti-Semitism is anti-Christ and it's anti-Christian. And the sad reality is when you study church history, professing Christians in the name of Christ have done murderous, horrible, torturous things to the Jewish people because, in quotes, they are Christ killers. And Paul is saying here that is not Christian, that is not Christ-like, and there is no room in our hearts for anti-Semitism or any racial prejudice for Christ has died for all. We should be as burdened for Mongolia in Pakistan as we are for America and our own family. Now, that does not mean that we have to support and defend every act by the modern state of Israel. No. In fact, people will look at us as foolish and ignorant if we do that because this nation is unsaved, led by and probably in majority, unsaved people that often do things that are not pleasing to Christ and are unrighteous and sinful. So supporting and loving the Jewish people doesn't mean supporting and always affirming everything that the nation of Israel does, but it does mean that we should be sincerely heartbroken over the eternal destiny of Israel as a people, and we should be burdened for every individual Jewish person we encounter. Second thing that I see here, or third thing that I see here about sharing our burden is this. A sincere burden is shared with a clear conscience that is confirmed by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, look, I'm not only telling the truth and not lying. I'm not only speaking like Christ would speak, and I'm speaking as every Christian should speak, but I want you to know that I have a clear conscience when I say I'm truly burdened, and my conscience is confirmed by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, what's going on there? Well, basically, I think this. The Old Testament says that a testimony or a witness is confirmed by what? Two or three witnesses. So Paul's saying, here I am testifying, I love and am burdened for lost people. And then he brings in Christ in the courtroom and says, Christ is my second witness. And then he brings in who? His conscience, which is indwelt and confirmed by the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, look, it's not just me saying it. This is what Christ says. This is what the Holy Spirit confirms. This is what we should be doing. Let me just say a practical uh, thing right here, and it's this. A burden for lost people is not just a verbal thing, a mental thing, or an emotional thing that we get worked up in our hearts. What I see in this passage about the Holy Spirit is that a burden is a spiritual thing created by God in our hearts. So if the Holy Spirit's in us, He is trying and seeking 
and will create in us a burden for lost people. It's a spiritual thing that should come out of our mouth, and we should be burdened. Well, those that are burdened for the lost believe in the reality of the burden, the reality that lost people are going to hell. They speak of it with sincerity, and three, they bleed with the intensity of it. They bleed with the intensity of it. Here's what Paul says. He says, look, I'm speaking sincerely, and here's what he's speaking about. Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing ceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Wow. Bleeding with intensity. I like this picture of Jesus. This, have you ever seen this statue, this picture that I have there in your notes? It's the statue entitled, And Jesus Wept. Does anyone know where it's located? Located in Oklahoma City. It's a part of the monument to the Oklahoma bombings. And I love this picture because it captures what Paul is saying in this passage. One hand of Jesus is on his face uh, as, as he looks like he's grieving, weeping. He knows the destiny of lost people. But where's his other hand? Where is it? It's on his heart because what we know up here ought to be moving our heart. I think that's beautiful. That's what a real burden is. Notice what your notes say. We should bleed with great sorrow and unceasing anguish in our hearts. A burden for lost people should touch our soul. It should break our hearts. It should burden us with a sadness too deep for words. It should literally make our heart hurt. Here's what great sorrow refers to. You trace this word out, this word sorrow in the Bible, you trace it out. It has to do with the sadness that comes due to separation. And so great sorrow is an intense sorrow over the thought of being separated from our loved ones for all of eternity. The word great is where we get our word mega. I love the word mega. You go to the Philippines, everything's mega. Mega this, mega that, everything's big. You know what he's saying? A real burden is a mega sadness. Not just that we are separated from people we love because we know Christ and they don't, but the sadness, the mega sadness, is that they are going to be eternally separated from God for all eternity. That should break our heart. And it should fill us with unceasing anguish, he says. Now, I don't know about you, but mega sadness... It's hard to measure up to, but when you say unceasing anguish, it, the word anguish has to do with pain. It ought to hurt you. It ought to hurt me. It's heartbreaking pain over the hardness of hearts toward the good news. It's unrelenting, the unrelenting ache that settles in a heart whenever the thought of people suffering for all eternity enters one's mind, both of people we know, but also people in general that we've never met. Now, let me ask you a question, and again, we're going to get very personal. Have you ever been so burdened for someone that it hurt your heart to think about them? Deep down inside, you carried this burden, this grief, this sadness, this sorrow that literally breaks your heart whenever you think of them. Imagine almost everybody has about something. But now here comes the application. Have you ever felt that kind of burden for lost Not just your loved one. Not just this situation that you wish changed. Not just this person who you wish changed. 
but for specific people you're related to, live next to, work with on a daily basis, you and I should... Notice the second point under this is this. We should be so heartbroken for those who are hell-bent that we would be willing to sacrifice everything. Now, if you think great sorrow is intense, it is. If you think unrelenting anguish is great, it is. But you see what Paul says next? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for their sake. Now, that's what I call intense, and that's way out of my life experience. Now, Paul doesn't say that he can do this. He says he would if he could do this. He's already said in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can separate him from Christ. So what he's saying is, if I could be separate from Christ, and if being separate from Christ and being sent to hell would result in the salvation of my people, I would do that. I would do that. That's pretty radical. Now, what he's dealing with here is this. He's answering the question that many in our Christian culture today are struggling with. What should I do with a burden that's so great? I love lost people or these lost people so much. And the heart of my loved one is so hard And the judgment of God is so severe on that unbelief. What do I do with that tension? Paul shows us how to deal with it. But first, let's look at wrong ways. Wrong ways to deal with that tension is, number one, to question God's love and justice. To question God's love and justice. And to question it regarding his judgment. Say things like this. A loving God would never send people to hell. A loving God would be unjust to send people to hell. That's not the way to go, and yet that's where many are going today. Number two, to change God's character and His words so it lines up with what my God would do. Here's what you see a lot of people saying and writing in print. My God would not send people to hell for everlasting judgment. Well, you know what I would say to that? I would say, you're probably right. Your God wouldn't. But we have to deal with not your God or my God but we have to deal with the God who has revealed himself in Scripture, and he does, and he is just and loving. Number three, and this might be, this is where I was until uh, this past year studying this topic. Here's where I was. Grudgingly accept who God is. Grudgingly or reluctantly accept who God is and what his word says about the loss, but wish there was no hell and focus on how, if you were God, you would do it differently. Can you relate to that? In fact, this is the common way that, in a sense, I was taught to deal with this. And you say it like this. Boy, I wish there was no hell. I wish that, you know, if I I could had anything to do with it, there would be no hell. But God says there is, so I believe in it. Now, that sounds humble, doesn't it? And it sounds compassionate. But you know what I'm really saying? I'm saying... I know how to do this better than God does. But since he's God and I'm not, I'll stick with him. But I just want you to tell you on the side, I'd do it. You would too. Now, what's the problem? 
what do all these ways of dealing with the tension have in common? They all three look at the tension from a human perspective. They all look at the tension from a human perspective that implies that somehow we know better than God does on how to deal with the eternal destiny. So what's the right way? What's the right way to deal with this tension? Here it is. Look to the cross. Look to the cross. I think it's amazing what Paul says. Paul says, look, these people are lost. They're headed to hell. I love them. I don't want to see them in hell. God is just and I'm committed to God. How do I relieve it? Here's what he says. I would die in their place. Save them. You know what he says? He, Paul wishes that he could, but he knows that he can't, sacrifice himself as a substitute to save his loved ones. In other words, he deals with the tension according to the gospel. He doesn't say, I wish God was different. I would do it different. He doesn't say, hey, by the way, I would do this differently. What's he say is, God's way is the right way. I just wish that I could do it for my people, but I can't. The right way is this. Sin is real. And people deserve to go to hell. We all do. God is just, and he will send them to hell. But God is loving to provide a way, a substitute, who would die in their place. And that person's not Paul, and it's not me. It's who? It's Jesus Christ. So he deals with the tension, not by denying it, but by submitting himself to the gospel. I think that is amazing. And it's very rare in these days. So here's the question. Is our love for God and others so great that we are willing to stay out of heaven for the saved and go to hell for the unsaved? Now put those in quotes. I should have put those in quotes. Stay out of heaven in quotes. Go to hell in quotes. Do you know what Paul said in Philippians? Here's what he said. For me to live is Christ, to die is what? And I would much rather die and go to be with Christ. But because of you, Philippians, save people... You need me to minister to you. You need greater encouragement. God has, I will stay out of heaven out of my love for saved people. I would, I would rather, I will stay here. Then he looks at lost people and he says, you know what? I love you lost people so much. I'd be willing to go to hell for you and give up my place in heaven if I could. I don't know about you, but the apostle Paul was one spiritual So, fourth, what do we do? A real burden, we act on the responsibility of the burden. So what should we be doing with this burden? Four things. Number one, sharing it with others. Sharing it with others. Listen, I'm, I'm praying for the day, and I think you've seen this in me, that as we're burdened, we share about it. And I think you've seen that in these last... I hope we start sharing of how we are burdened. Because that means our hearts are... Number two, we start praying. We start praying sincerely. I think it's amazing. Paul has this burden, and then in Romans 10.1, he says, I, it's my heart's desire, and my heart's desire comes out in prayer. I pray for Israel to be saved. Listen, if you really are burdened, you will share it with others that you're burdened and you will ask them to join you in praying for it. Number three, witnessing to the lost about the with sincerity and intensity. You know what? I sat there for two and a half hours. Yes, 
We got passionate. I mean, you're going you're to discuss Christ with two Jewish people who are atheists. I don't think that's not going to get me in the mix there. We're not. But you know what? I was so relaxed. I was so relaxed. Because you know what? I'm growing and learning. I don't have an agenda here. I didn't start the conversation. Jerry did. Now, I'm sure at some point he read it as he switched seats with Susan to give him. I shared do versus. And of course, when you get to the Christ part, Satan always interrupts. But later in the conversation, he remembered do versus. I'm telling you that a belief in God's sovereignty does not hinder your evangelism. It frees you to not be hurried and rushed and controlling and manipulative in how you share it because a sovereign God is leading you in the process. I was relaxed. I wasn't there to win an argument, and I really wasn't there to so much win them to Christ as persuade them to consider Christ and to hear his claims, which I bet they have not heard. Number four, growing in your sincerity and intensity in light of the reality. Now, let me just end with this very quickly. As I worked through this this week, I thought, I don't measure up to Paul. I mean, are, are you coming away with that? Okay, I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to be burdened like Paul. Now, how many people would, you know, how many, every hand raised, right? I look at this and I'm like, I'm not there. I know our class isn't there. So what do we do with that? Do we do what we often do and just walk away and say, well, that's the Bible. I do my thing. No, here, here's, here's what God gave me. And I give it to you. You're not Paul. I'm not Paul. But here's the good news. Paul wasn't always Paul. He used to be Saul, the Christ rejecter, the Christian killer. And this is written over 20 years plus after his salvation. Paul didn't get to this place overnight, and neither will you and I. But I will tell you this. If we're truly born again, and if we're truly surrendered to the reality of the gospel and the eternal destiny of men, we will grow to the point to where we can say, I will sacrifice whatever it costs for others to hear Christ. Folks, we got six couples coming. I think it behooves us to sacrifice some of our time, to sacrifice some of our resources, to sacrifice a week to hang with some people who are burdened and heartbroken for the hell bent so that you and I can pick up on that passion and grow in that reality. Amen. Father, we're not there yet. We're not where we ought to be, but we're not where we used to be. And so, Father, we're thankful that in your grace you have saved us, but also you've given us the Holy Spirit and we are in Christ. Therefore, we can view lost people like you view them and you can create in us a burden that is as great and as intense, as sincere, as real as the burden of the Apostle Paul. And I pray, God, that you would start with me. I pray that you would start with each person in this class until we speak of it, we pray of it, 
We witness of it and we are growing in it to a place that you are pleased and we reflect your heart for the law. May it be in the name of Jesus. Amen.